Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. And I've not had the privilege to meet you yet. My name's Scott, the lead pastor here. Delighted to have you all here. Welcome again to Brunswick Elementary School. We're, uh, we're privileged to be here together. We're in a series for the summer called Stops Along the Way. And um, it, it's these stories that Jesus... Um, the stories of Jesus as he was engaging with his disciples. Now, what I think is so fascinating is if you were responsible to train up someone to bring in a new kind of worldview, a new way of looking at things, how would you do this? And Jesus didn't do this by gathering together people and saying, I know what we're going to do. We're going to have a weekend retreat and you're just going to learn everything about the kingdom. He didn't roll them in a course. Instead, he did life with them. And if you're a teacher, if you're a leader of others, you should be leaning into how Jesus did that. The most powerful stories, often with our children, are not the things that come out of a textbook, but those moments when we, we say, hey, hey, this is how you forgive your brother or sister. When, when you're sharing life with someone and you say, this is what it means to be a good friend. There's are stops along the way. Just as Jesus would have invested in his disciples and told them all about the heart and the mind of God, what it meant to be a follower of God, what it meant to be a part of God's kingdom, we kind of want to peek into that as well. And we want to go along with him on these stops along the way. Because what it did is it so dramatically changed the lives of these disciples. What they experienced as they walked along the way with Jesus. That, that it altered the course of their life. In fact, wild-eyed Peter, if you remember Peter, the guy who like brandished a sword when they went to arrest Jesus. I always loved that about Peter. I love that he had a sword. <laughs> why did he have a sword? I don't know. I don't know why he had a sword. But wild-eyed Peter experienced Jesus in such a way that it ended up changing the course of his life. And even after Jesus died and resurrected from the grave, for 30 years after that, Peter went on and told the stories of Jesus because it so changed his life. And Peter, as he's getting older, some 30 years later, he's in Rome. He's awaiting trial by this crazy emperor, Nero. And he's been telling these stories of Jesus. And his friend, Mark, was a Greek Christian he said, Peter, I've been hearing these stories from you. Everywhere you've went, you've told people about the kingdom of God as Jesus communicated it. And it's been so impactful to me that I want you to tell me one more time, but I really want to stop to record the details of this story, not just for our generation, but for the generations that would come after me. This is where the gospel of Mark came from. Mark would transcribe what Peter told him. Now, this is a first century document, and Peter died around 65 to 66 AD during the life of Nero, this emperor. And eventually, eventually, these eyewitness accounts would eventually be brought together and put into a document with the rest of the, 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 the eyewitness accounts, with the rest of the letters from Paul. Eventually, it would be brought together into this thing called the Bible. But what we're reading today is fundamentally the eyewitness accounts of Peter. So for the next few minutes, I don't hear me reading from the Bible. And the reason that that's important is because for some people, when you say, well, the Bible says, they would say, well, do you know what else the Bible says? And if they have that kind of challenge, I get it. I understand that conflict. But Mark, when he was writing, wasn't writing 
the Bible because for hundreds of years it, the Bible didn't even exist eventually 300 years later the, the early church would pull together these writings of the apostles the writings of Peter they would pull together uh, the Old Testament writings eventually it would be called the Bible but as Peter was was telling Mark he had no idea he was going to be eventually included in the Bible he was just telling Mark about this friend of his that he was so convinced that he was the Messiah, he wasn't just a rabbi, that he writes it down. Eventually, Mark goes on, he leaves Rome, this recorded document of, of, of Peter goes to the library in Alexandria, it's multiplied, it's copied time and time again, and it's eventually called the Bible. So as I'm reading, I just want you to imagine with your mind's eye, Peter as an old man sitting in jail saying, this is what you need to know about Jesus. And this is how Peter starts out how he understood his best friend. Check it out in Mark chapter 1. And there's uh, uh, Bibles underneath your seats, the orange ones if you want to follow along that way. Mark chapter 1, this is how he identifies who Jesus is. He says, this is the beginning. I want to tell you the story of Jesus, the beginning of the good news. And if when you think about the story of Jesus, you don't know that it's good news, and you probably don't know all the story. It's about Jesus. He was the Messiah. Peter's coming from a Hebrew worldview, and he would say this person was the promised Messiah. Not only that, he says he is the Son of God. After the crucifixion, Peter's awaiting, the awaiting trial by this insane emperor Nero, and he stops to say, I want you to know about this guy who was my best friend, and I believe he is the son of God, not because the Bible said so, but because I saw it with my own eyes. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, what was the essence of Jesus' ministry as he went from town to town and person to person? It was this, is that he went into Galilee... Now, what is Galilee? Uh, I think, is there a map back there, Dan? Yeah. Pull that up, all right? Because a lot of what we're talking about is, is in the space and time around Palestine. And Galilee, you have down at the bottom, hard to see, but the Dead Sea is down there. That's the area of Judea and Jerusalem. But Jesus' hometown was up at the upper lake up there. There's Capernaum, there's Galilee. That's the whole region. It was much more blue-collar. It was much more agricultural. That was kind of um, a little bit more of a rural environment than Jerusalem would have been. And that's where Jesus starts out his ministry, traveling from town to town and what was he talking about go back to the previous slide there Dan he says that he was proclaiming the good news about God verse 15 in Mark chapter 1 and then he says this this is so important he says the time has come what time is he talking about well these ancient Jews were waiting for hundreds of years for God to break through the silence that they had experienced they had been looking and waiting for God to come and make all things new and make right all the things that the prophets had spoken about and they were in this like extended waiting time and Jesus says, hey, guess what? The time has come. The kingdom of God, he says, has come near. It's here. He says, repent and believe the good news. To which we would say, well, Peter, what is the good news of God? And, and then for most of us who have raised in church, we would say, well, it's that Jesus died and then came back from the dead and we could have forgiveness from our sins and be in heaven forever. But Peter would say, no, 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 no. All, all that stuff hasn't even happened yet. 
That, that's coming in the future, but Jesus is saying uh, that it's something else than that. Let me tell you about this message that Jesus had, Peter would say, from space to space he would go and he had one theme. This theme was about the kingdom of God. The time has come. The waiting is over. Something's been missing, but it's now here. And everything that came in the past in the Jewish world and in the Greek world, it was all in history, a preparation for this time and this event that's happening right here. The kingdom of God is near. Now the challenge is this. We don't have kingdoms. Like we don't think in terms of kingdoms. So how do we understand what a kingdom really, like why did he use that word? The kingdom of God. When you hear kingdom, I want you to think about the rule and the reign of God. A king. It's that God is king. It's the range of his effective will. Think about that when you think about the kingdom. The kingdom of God is near because the king is actually in town, Peter was saying and Jesus was saying. In the appropriate response, Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is here. The time has come, so repent and believe. Repentance means this. Repentance means to not walk away from that truth, but to face it and embrace it. Face it, turn towards it, embrace it as true. Because Jesus would say, I'm introducing a new way of living, not simply a new way of dying. I'm, in, I'm introducing a new way of relating to God. I'm introducing a new way of relating to one another. Don't turn away from it, turn towards it, embrace it, face it. This is a new thing that's happening. To which some of us would say, well, Peter, that's great, but I'm not, I'm not ready for that. And Peter would say, I get it because I haven't even gotten started yet. You shouldn't embrace it until you've heard the whole story because what I experienced about Jesus was, was so mind-blowing that the best thing to do is just to embrace it. Until then, you should be skeptical. Peter, Peter then goes on to say about how Jesus would go from town to town and he would teach about this kingdom of God, this breaking through of the heavens into the earthlies. And people would come around and Jesus would demonstrate that he was the promised Messiah by performing these miracles and people were healed and, and amazing things were happening and this would attract crowds of people. In Mark chapter 1 verse 22, it says that the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them and when he taught them, he was as one who had authority. He wasn't speaking about God, he was speaking as if he was God. And the response is that people leaned in and they were amazed. As a result, you can imagine in a little farming rural community what this did to that environment. People heard about this from all over. They heard about the healings and they would rush to see Jesus. So as he's traveling from town to town speaking about the news about the kingdom of God, it's here. He probably ran out of supplies or something. He says, let's go back to hometown. He goes to Capernaum. And there he makes his way to a, a large home. And this was something that would have happened regularly. Like uh, a traveling teacher, a traveling rabbi would come into town. And the rabbi or the teacher of that town would regularly say, hey, uh, I, I want to I sit down and learn from you. And so that's kind of the scene that we open up looking at this weekend, that Jesus is in a home. It's probably a nice home. It's not a home like maybe what you would think. It's probably a courtyard involved. It was probably like mud and sticks kind of construction. Uh, there was usually like a, a roof on top that had out steps from the outside. You could go and they would have things stored up on the top. 
And Jesus is in this home and he's speaking and teaching about the kingdom of God. And there's so many people that are pressing into this that the courtyard is filled and, and the hallways going into the courtyard are filled and, and people are pressing in one after the other and he's saying, now the time has come. My br- Jewish brothers and sisters, this is what you have been waiting for. Embrace it and face it. Embrace these priorities about what it means to live for God's kingdom. And then as he's preaching, and maybe you remember this because of how you grew up in church. Maybe you remember this childhood story about being so many people in this courtyard that, that there's, there's, there's some people that come to go see Jesus. This is what it says in Mark chapter 2, verse 3. It says, Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. So they've got this cot Maybe your Bibles use the word like pallet, but there's a paralyzed guy. He's got four good friends. I think that's an amazing story about what friendship means. And they they say, if we can just bring him to Jesus, think about what Jesus can do. And so they press in, but when they get there, there's this crowd and they're trying to make their way through and the crowd is like, shh, we're trying to listen to Jesus. So what did they do? Well, they, they turned around and went back home. No, that's not what they did. They said, we've got to find a way to get our friend to Jesus. And so this famous story, Peter's saying, I was there for this. I was in that courtyard. Jesus was preaching and he was teaching and you could hear a pin drop other than his preaching. And then in the middle of all of that, these guys, they were trying to make their way and so what they must have done was they went out those outdoor steps to the roof and then all of a sudden as Jesus is teaching and we're all listening and then this stuff starts to fall from the ceiling. Dirt starts to fall and it says this, Jesus had to finally stop. Verse 4, since they could not get to him because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. I really wish Peter had given us some more detail here. Like number one, like was the homeowner home? Uh, like if I'm the homeowner, I'm grabbing a beer can and I'm like chucking it at the guy. Like, what are you doing destroying my house? We, we think that this was probably an expensive, expensive home because some of the gospel accounts say that they, were, they took off the tile. So there was like a tiled roof and some stuff going on underneath all of that. And, and they dig through that. I'd love to know like how long did it take him? Like, was this like a, a 30 second thing? <laughs> was this like 15 minutes of stuff falling from the ceiling as this happened? And I just imagine everyone's in this kind of like darker space and these rays of light start popping through. And Peter doesn't give us those kinds of details though because that's not the point of this story. They dig the hole big enough for a grown man to fit through. And Jesus just kind of pauses and they all look up kind of staring, blinking at this light that's now spilling through. And Jesus says this. This is amazing. He says, and Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith. This is so important. How do you see faith? Isn't faith, like isn't that, isn't your faith about something that you think and believe in your soul? And yet they were confident that Jesus can. They were hoping that Jesus will. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to have faith. To be confident that God can do something and to hope that God will do something. And the Christian faith is is a faith that always shows up in our actions, James would say. 
That faith is never, it's never just a thought, it's never just an emotion, it's not just an internal feeling we have, but it's always going to show up in some sort of action. It's always going to have some manifestation. And Jesus sees this, and he sees their faith, and everyone's bewildered. It's so quiet. And they're all going, okay, here it comes. It's going to happen again. I've heard about it before where, where Jesus healed these people and this is about to happen. Their anticipation. And then Peter tells us there's this twist in the story because of what Jesus says next. Jesus saw their faith and he says to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. The crowd just groans because mere mortals can't forgive sins. And the paralyzed man groans because he's like, well, that's, that's not exactly why I'm here, Jesus. <laughs> like, that's great and all, but that's not why I came. The implications of what Jesus was saying was not lost on his audience. This group of Jewish people, wait, you're saying... You're saying that his sins are forgiven, but there's been no sacrifice made? You're saying that his sins are forgiven, but there's no priests involved with all of this? You're saying that his sins are forgiven, but he doesn't have to do something in order to earn that forgiveness? You're saying that his sins are forgiven, but he doesn't have to go to the temple? In fact, Jesus, do you think that you're greater than the temple? Do you think you can just walk in here and replace hundreds of years of tradition? You know, we have a whole system for how you find forgiveness. You've got you've to go through these hoops and you've got to do these things and prove that you are really, really sorry and that, and that you're going to make it up somehow. You, have, you think that you can just replace all of that with just a word? All of the laws that Moses implemented about how we have peace with God? We know that's what Peter was thinking, like what the, what the people were thinking, because of what Peter tells us next. Verse 6, now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, uh, and they didn't say it out loud, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Blaspheming is kind of like an old-timey word, isn't it? Like we don't use that language today. But what it means is Jesus was claiming to do something that only God can do. There was a sense where we understand that because who can sit as a judge against someone else? Even in our culture, like we kind of understand that and we get that, that kind of indignation. Because they were upset because Jesus was setting himself up as a judge on someone else. And when you judge someone... You're issuing a verdict based on your judginess of them, right? Culturally speaking, that's one of the most offensive things that we can do. Who are you to condemn them because of their lifestyle choices, because of their actions? Who can sit as judge? Someone who is impartial? Someone who is untainted? Someone who has been given the authority to judge. Even in our courts of law, there's a judge that is appointed by the people. They say, you're, you're going to be the one that has the authority to cast a verdict on the guilt of someone. This is someone who is impartial, untainted, 
And truth be told, these teachers of the law were actually quite justified in, th- in protesting what they were experiencing because they knew the law. And the law said that only God has the authority to forgive sins. And so the crowd was shocked when Jesus said this because they had no category for this. Peter had no category for this. The teachers of the law had no category for this. And then it's just silent again. Peter says, man, I'll never forget this because Jesus looks right at them. Immediately, verse 8, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he says to them, why are you thinking these things? And Peter doesn't say this, but I just imagine him saying, Man, this guy can fill our boat with fish. He can cast out the lepers and uh, the, the demons. He can heal lepers. And, and he can read my thoughts. We've got to be careful about this guy. He knows what we're thinking, right? He says this, verse 9. Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk? And this isn't a trick question. It's not even a difficult question, but it's one that we have to answer. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or get up and take your mat and walk? You know, there's something really important happening in the middle of this story because to these ancient Jews, a part of their cultural assumption was this. That there's a correlation between our sickness and our behavior. Or as the Jews would have understood it, our sickness and our sin. That if I have an ailment, if I have a condition, if I'm sick for a long time, it's because I did something or my parents did something or my, my great-grandfather who stole a pig, you know, he did something and now as a result we are condemned. <laughs> Stanley Yelnets from Holes, right? Uh, we live with this thing for a long time because of the sin of someone else. So sickness was always a result of sin. For pagans, they would have believed that if you didn't offer the right sacrifices, if you did something to make the gods unhappy, that that's why your crop was bad. That's why you were losing sheep, because you did something that you shouldn't have done. And to, and to the Jews, there was this assumption that, be, that, that there was a loss of health, there was a loss of life, because you did something that displeased God. In other words, they were saying this, that something is wrong with you because you did something wrong. That something is wrong with you because you did something wrong. And it's fascinating to me that the same things that they struggled with are the same things that we kind of struggle with today. This existential question like why do bad things happen? Not just to good people but period. Why does that happen? In the ancients, for the ancient people, you know, just like we do today, many people would struggle with that. And so Jesus steps in and he actually contradicts that whole line of thinking. He would hold to a Genesis worldview. A Genesis worldview would say that when mankind rebelled against God, when God gave them the choice and they rebelled against God, that on the heels of that sin entering the picture came sin into the world and pollution and corruption. And it's not a one-on-one relationship. And even sometimes you'll find that righteous people will get sick and will die. And not every instance of sickness is because of something that happened in a sinful kind of way. And so we can't make any sense or rhyme or reason out of it. When sin entered the world, on the tail end of that was the consequences of sin and death. That's why what he says next, for Peter, 
for those disciples, it was like this point of no return for them. Because this is what Jesus said. But I want you to know that the Son of Man. Now, when Jesus uses that term, Son of Man, it doesn't mean a lot to us, but to the ancient, those ancient first century Jews, it had so much cultural meaning for them. It's not just that, it's, that he's messianic. It's not just that he's claiming to be the Messiah, but he's claiming to be divine because of a prophecy in the book of Daniel where the Son of Man is equated to uh, the divine God-man. Jesus was making that claim about himself. And for some people, they lose their faith when they go to college and they have a college professor and the college professor says, hey, did you know that Jesus never claimed to be God? He may not have used those words the way that we as a 21st century mind would understand them, but to those first century Jews, that phrase was power-packed for them. It had more meaning in their cultural context than anything else Jesus could have done. Jesus was saying, I am divine. I am God the Son. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Now how could anyone substantiate that ability to forgive sins? If I just say it, how do you verify that? It's not measurable. It's not something you can observe. There's only one way to substantiate that. By physically rolling back the consequences of sin. By putting sin and its consequences back in the box. By undoing the pollution and the apparent unfair distribution of suffering in the condition of sickness that this guy was experiencing. So he says to the man, verse 11, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And again, you can almost hear a pin drop in the room. Because if he could reverse the consequences of sin with a word, then maybe there's forgiveness of sin as well. With a word, as well not because I went to the temple not because there was a priest involved not because I sacrificed animals not because I had to go through these hoops not because I had to prove just how sorry I was or make it right but with the word and the authority of a judge who is impartial untainted with authority and sure enough the man verse 12 he he got up he took his mat and he walked out in full view of them all. It's as if Peter was saying, hey, fact check me. Everybody saw it. I wasn't the only one. And look at the crowd's response. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. A man with that kind of authority. He wasn't just a prophet who had some miracles. He was, he was the divine man God that had authority to judge and the authority to forgive. Now, I want to ask you a question just wherever you're at here this weekend. Have you ever asked yourself the question, you know, is it possible that God could 
or would forgive me? Is it possible that there's a personal God and for some people that's a challenge because you know like there's this big impersonal God but a God that actually knows my name and cares about the details of my life which is by the way how Peter understood Jesus to be because he walked alongside him for years and years and he heard about the kingdom and he saw the kingdom taking place but here's here's that question is it possible that there's a God this personal God that cares about me that sees and understands me, not just in general ways, but in specific ways that knows the sins that I have done and that he could or would forgive me for that? Like personally, not just this category of like, well, God so loved the world, all the the sins are forgiven, you know, like this big category, but like specifically these things that you've done that you would wish no one else would know about? Is it possible? Do you ever wonder, God, would you really forgive me when you hear my prayers, when you look at me? Is it possible that you could see me and not hold those things against me anymore? That when you look at me, it's not through the filter of what I've done or what I've not done. It's not through this filter of these promises. I would, I would never do this thing again, and yet I kept doing them over and over again. That God would never look at me, and I, you know, I, the hypocrisy in my heart, because I said I wouldn't do things, and yet I can't even keep my own standards for myself. That God would look at me and he wouldn't see me through these, the lens of my addictions that I have or that abortion that I had when I was younger or those promises I never kept. Is it, is it possible that when God looks at me, he doesn't see those mistakes that I just wish I could go back and undo? That when he looks at me, sin is no longer in the equation? Is it possible that I could have peace with God? Is it possible that how I get right with God isn't found by going through a temple or through a priest, that it's no longer having to sacrifice animals again and again? Because these first century Jews, they were thinking this. They were thinking this is, this is a system that how we have peace with God is even established. But you're saying that, that, I, that, that God doesn't see me through my sin, that there can be forgiveness aside from all of that? Jesus would say, hey, the time has come the old way of doing things, that I've got to make it right with God, that I've got to be really, 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 really sorry, and and if I just jump through all of these hoops, if I just sacrifice in this kind of way, that maybe, just maybe, God will accept me again. Jesus would say, a new way has come. The judge is here. The king is in town. And I have authority, and it's good news. And getting right with God comes through me because I am the judge I am completely innocent. I am untainted. I am unbiased. So he would say, listen, it's here and it's now. Embrace it. Face it. Repent. Walk to it. 
Is it possible that there's forgiveness for me? And Peter would enter the scene and he would say, yes, because I witnessed it hundreds and thousands of times as I walked with him along the road through these stops along the way. The kingdom of God is near. God is doing something new and it's here. And the king is here and he's undoing the effects of the fall. He's dealing not just with the physical condition of man. You know, I'm sick, I've got leprosy, I keep falling into these patterns. But he's dealing with the position of what we deal with. Now here's the problem, church. Too often in the church, we spend all of our time dealing with the condition of people. Either you smoke and you shouldn't, or you have this kind of orientation and you shouldn't have that. You know what you got to do? you got to fix all of those things before you can come to God. But notice what Jesus said. He said, your sins are forgiven. The, the position before God, you are right with Him, came well before the condition was ever fixed. And we spend all of our time saying, you've got to fix your condition before you can come and get your position right with God. We have to realign that, church. And even after we've experienced the forgiveness of God, we forget that it's the position that's solid before Him, even though the condition of our flesh will constantly vex us, constantly suppress us, constantly be something that we deal with over and over again. Jesus came to deal fundamentally with our position before God. And what is the position that He offers? That we would become sons and daughters of the King, that we would be adopted into His family. Just last week I saw this touching, this touching video of this young girl who opened an envelope and was reading the legal declaration of being adopted into the family that she had been staying in. And it was, it was moving because she's in tears and it just says, you are officially a child of this family complete with its legal protections. You have complete rights to that. You know, there's a big difference between when a friend comes over and says, hey, can I have a glass of water? I need some of your resources. Hey, like, would you pay for my lunch? <laughs> right? And when my child asks for those things, that provision is their right because of their position with me. Not their condition, but their position. And Jesus steps in the scene and says, I'm going to deal with the position of mankind. The condition, there's times when he chose to forgive and times when he didn't. But the position was secure. He steps in and he undoes the effects of the fall. And when Jesus validates his authority to forgive sins, you know, he's not just dealing with making the cells in his body work properly. You know what else he was doing? When he declared him as being forgiven and then backing it up by restoring his body, in this community, he would have been restoring the right standing of that individual in the community. No longer would he be experiencing the shame of when people saw him and said, man, what did his parents do? Look at him, he's paralyzed, he can't do anything right. That would have no longer been there. Now he, this thing that would have been disintegrated, this, the family who had to kind of, well, yep, that's my brother, yep, that's my son, and we, we love him, but you know, that thing happened to him, and it's kind of this thing of shame. Now this thing had been disintegrated, is now made whole again. See, the gospel, what the gospel does is it restores community that's broken because it removes the shame 
and it removes the condemnation. He's restored to his community. But the other thing that happens in this account is Peter tells us that this conflict between Jesus and the religious officials kind of starts at this point. Because when Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins, he's basically replacing the entire religious institution and the temple system and the priest system. And it set him up to be at odds with Jerusalem into the future. But the other thing that it does for the audience that was around Jesus and even for us as we think about this is, is it possible that if God can forgive your sins and not just in the big ways, but those specific, embarrassing, I don't want anyone else to know about it, this is the stain I wish I could erase from my record. If God can forgive that, is it possible that you can forgive yourself for it too? That the power to forgive yourself is to recognize and accept the fact that your heavenly Father no longer holds that against you as well. Some point, you'll get to this point where you'll realize, you know, if, if, the, if the God who is ultimately impartial, untainted, the one that has the authority to judge doesn't hold my sin against me and he offers forgiveness, then I can, I can forgive myself as well. It's the power to find that. It's the power, the gospel is the power to an integrated self, an integrated community. And that's what Jesus came to say. The kingdom of God is near. The time has come. The wait is over. Because the ruler and the reign and the kingdom of God is here. The king is in town. I want to pray with you and then we're going to respond just singing that song back again, gratitude in light of, and here's how I want us to process through it. I want you to think about that stain, that thing that you would go, you know, if I could have a do-over, I would go back and do that one differently. Right? If I could go back and I can erase something off of my record, man, I wish that wasn't there. That's my greatest regret. That sin that you don't want anyone else to know about that Jesus looks at you and says, man, if you would turn to me, there's actually forgiveness for that and you can be right with the Father. Like, what does that do to our hearts? How do you think that man left, you know, being lowered down as he like picked up his mat and made his way out for the first time in his life walking? You think he was just like, hey, that was cool. He, he was probably so overwhelmed with gratitude singing praises to God and says they all experience that. That's the proper response to that. So I'm going to pray and then I just want to respond by worshiping through that song that we learned already, the gratitude song once again. God, thanks for the power of these words of forgiveness. Thank you, God, that you have come to set up a kingdom that's completely different, completely new. God, it's not easy to step into that. I, I, I know in my own heart I think, yeah, I've been forgiven, but... I need, I need to earn it. Yeah, I've been forgiven, but I'm just going to show everyone how sorry I am. Yeah, I've been forgiven, but... Jesus steps in and he says, before the condition is ever satisfied, the position is, is secure and the forgiveness is granted. Through Christ, when we turn and we face it and when we embrace it. 
What a glorious thing. It's not easy to walk in that. God, I pray that that would be true. God, that you would be that freedom-giving God as we choose. But, but you know what? There, there was that, that act that the man had to respond to. And so there's this response from our heart, God, to lean into it and to press into it, to walk in forgiveness, to walk in light. So God, I pray that you would loosen those chains for the hearts that be in this space here. Your spirit would lead us into that. Love you, God. We praise you and pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.